Welcome back to the Path of Longevity show, and I'm your host, Dr. Robert Lufkin, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Stephen Sidoroff. We get to talk a lot about ideas about inflammation, uh, but today we we get to talk more about that, but we also get to talk, talk about ways of implementing new approaches and changing the paradigm of how we treat it and address it. Today, we get to speak with Dr. Rakesh Suri, an expert in the area, coming to us as previously the CEO of the Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi, and now as president of and CMO of Fountain Life Organization. Rakesh, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Dr. Lufkin. It's, it's honored to be here with you all on this very important subject. <laughs> Well, before we uh, dive into this, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about your background and how you came to be interested in this in this area. Well, well, that's a it's a great way place to start. So, I started as a as a physician at a medical school at the University of Toronto. I really had a global focus uh, during my career. I did a lot of uh, third world work, and actually, one summer studied leprosy in India. Uh, uh, swabbing the nares of of lepromatous patients when PCR was just being invented and brought into mainstream medicine. It was during that time that I really understood that the discrepancies in terms of the technology, the diagnostics, the therapeutics, and the way to pay for them were disjointed. And I suppose that really propelled me on my journey to return, finish medicine, very fortunate to be given funding to complete a an immunology PhD, a DPhil in immunology in Oxford in England, uh, where we studied the role of turning inflammation off and inducing tolerance as a means of uh, accepting heart transplants. Uh, and then returned to the University of Toronto, finished general surgery uh, and heart surgery, uh, and then decided to to really take a pause and think what was next, how it was going to take these these this education, these experiences, this passion for touching humanity on a broader plane and bringing it into something that was really practical and useful. Uh, had the opportunity then to to travel to Mayo Clinic, where I went for a, a fellowship, and then was very privileged and honored to be brought on the medical staff, where I focused on something that changed my life and my career trajectory forever. Mayo Clinic is one of the foremost centers in the world focusing on valvular heart disease, in particular, uh, a very strange condition known as myxomatous mitral valve prolapse. And what we found through studying that was that there was a, a, a distinct gap between the diagnosis of this condition, the onset of symptoms, and the willingness to undergo therapy. And we can talk more about that later, but that that paradigm of linking the three, creating the science, and then embedding that into clinical practice really uh, gave me an insight into how medicine works and how our guidelines can be shaped by proactive thinking, uh, a co collating the data, publishing it, and then socializing it. It was also during that time that it did, uh, as a basic scientist, had uh, work in a lab at Mayo Clinic where we studied the samples from myxomatous mitral valve patients. It very strikingly, 20, 20 odd years ago, found that there were, were the elements of advanced inflammation 
in a completely asymptomatic condition. And again, we can talk more about that later as to is relevant to this conversation. But fast forward on from from there, uh, after bringing together a team to bring robotics, uh, robotic cardiac surgery to Mayo was was fortunate enough to be to be uh, recruited to do something else that was truly impactful. And that was to be to initiate uh, grow, expand, and then lead the 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 uh, world's first U.S. academic medical center ever, purpose built outside of America, Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi, and uh, during seven remarkable years, six thousand truly heroic caregivers, fortunate enough to leave a, 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 an imprint on humanity. Six hour flight radius around Abu Dhabi, about three billion people. So they continue to do well now in the top 150 U.S. academic. Uh, medical center list worldwide. And and now I'm back pivoting to something new, Blue Ocean, how to bring advanced diagnostics, uh, remarkable people, a shared mission, uh, advanced analytics, and then find a mechanism to pay for it all. So that's that's the the little task we have before us now and uh, fortunate enough to be here with you to talk about it. Well, congratulations! That's a great accomplishments and a great legacy already that you've uh, that you've uh, created. Um, be- before we dive into this, maybe we could take a moment and you would share with us your views uh, on the way that you think about longevity. What is aging? Why do we age? What when you think about that? What model do you use? Well, there's so much science now in terms of the ohms, the proteome, the secretome, the the microbiome, the metabolome. I really like to look at it on the from the macro plane as um, as as a leader in healthcare, healthcare policy, and funding. That how we can bring together to take a holistic view. And I like to start with myself as a leader who leads by example. And I, I tell my patients or the staff that that I work with um, or or even when giving lectures that really have to start with the basics. And the basics are are overlooked by so many of us. And let me just start from from the beginning of the day. We all need at least eight hours sleep. the 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 science, the research shows it. And we all we all failed that test during residency and medical school in our early staff years, where we where we 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 worked hard and uh, and and gave up sleep for the sake of a broader a broader goal. But we're now finding that those elements really put us in an adverse position, as not only as doctors but as human beings, as 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 spouses, as parents, etc. So starting with eight hours of solid sleep and monitored by your your devices etc is really is really a huge advantage in life and then at, during during the day at some point but usually in the morning there's good evidence now showing that moving the body is an important way to begin the day off well and kickstarting the metabolism getting the neurochemicals in order and focusing on the day ahead so beginning beginning the day with with a, a hearty amount of exercise 30 to 45 minutes a day is is always a good thing and i tell people that it it's it's just a matter of priority you have the time you have the ability to do it in any room just you just got to you just got to do it there's the the exception should be not doing it and and the routine should be doing it every day and then 
um, having family time, having relationship type of experiences where we bring together those who are important in our lives, whether they're their they're spouses or children or friends or an extended community of any type. I mean, the the uh, the Blue Zone literature has taught us, along with other analogous subsets, this is so, so important. So beginning the day off with community is critically important. Along with that is having a little time to be reflective, whether it's meditation or yoga or spirituality or some sort of collaborative uh, exercise where we are reflective uh, within ourselves and amongst ourselves in terms of our significance uh, on on the planet uh, each day is really important for the day ahead. Wor- working hard is is never is never a bad thing, and I think the science has shown us that that those who retire but yet commit to another career or remain intellectually curious and passionate are those that live the longest. And therefore, I always, from from students to colleagues to even my children, always uh, encourage them to be be it, uh, taking on very impactful tasks, whether it's self-learning or contributing to community or um, leaving leaving an imprint on humanity. Eating is critical. Uh, we, we understand that caloric restriction is one of the most potent drivers of decreased inflammation uh, and reverse aging. Uh, bi- biologic a- aging is reduced with, through caloric restriction. And it's not only in humans, it's in other, other types of animals and, and, uh, and mammals. And finally, uh, some mechanism to, at the end of the day, to bring it all together, to have downtime, to be thoughtful, mindful, community-based, uh, before before heading into a restful sleep that's well curated for t- for temperature, uh, noise reduction, and uh, and and freedom from light are important. So if we if we adhere to these basic things, Dr. Lifkin, that the the data shows we can eliminate or delay uh, or a decrease approximately 70 to 80% of those things that drive adverse healthcare outcomes and healthcare costs. So I like to start from a macro level, uh, explaining to people and communities uh, and populations how we can improve the health of ourselves and others. Yeah, those those are all such good points. And in the nutrition um the caloric restriction certainly is powerful. Do you um, do you recommend uh, uh, fasting at all, or intermittent fasting, or narrowing the eating window aside from eating less? Because it, it's it's hard to eat less, and the caloric restriction you can people can only maintain for a while. But what are your thoughts about the eating window, or is that a whole different uh, thing? We now know it's much more complicated than we ever understood in medical school. There's, for instance, a recent publication showing that some individuals have a caloric thermostat, meaning if they don't hit that thermostat, that they are going to find their body is going to find a way to hold on to the calories and diminish energy expenditure such that their body mass index will be maintained. And this is very different than what we were taught in medical school, that it was merely an act of will or you know, avoiding that cheesecake or skipping that bread or or not eating a, a piece of steak. It, these are gross o- or oversimplifications 
These are gross oversimplifications of a very complex narrative. I can share with you my own story. Uh, as as an, an aging physician, uh, a father, leader, etc., I found in my uh, mid to late 40s that it became more difficult with the same amount of exercise, the same number of calories, the same mix of foods to maintain uh, a lean body and energy levels that I had in, in in my earlier years. And therefore, I stumbled upon a, uh, a, uh, a habit, a pattern that worked well for me, but it was in a very circuitous way. As a leader of Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi, um, during Ramadan, which is the holy month every year, the uh, the the uh, tradition is to fast as as a um, as a cultural and religious uh, uh, tradition and honor uh, from sun sun uh, rise to sundown, and therefore uh, in in uh, solidarity with our brothers and sisters who who uh, undertook this tradition it was a we we made it commonplace in the hospital that we would we too would not eat or drink in public spaces and it was through this that i i i came upon the power of fasting in my own life not only did i feel this true bonding with my brothers and sisters uh who were fasting but we broke the fast together so not only were were the calories being restricted and timed but there was this this community that came together to be very thoughtful about how we broke our fast and what we utilized to break our fast and in what sequence we broke our fast so it was through that over several years that I really came to uh, understand in my own life the power of that in terms of decreasing the the the, the feeding window that I I uh, I uh, partook in, and this not only improved my blood pressure, my cholesterol, my uh, my mood, my concentration, but also my body fat content, and it was really a powerful real world demonstration of the effectiveness of a thousands of years old tradition in driving the elements of longevity. Yeah, it's a fascinating point. I mean, we could see it from uh, from the social psychological sides of the benefits, like you say, of, of celebrating with with friends and colleagues, a, a similar tradition and participating in that. And then you also mentioned some biological drivers what what's playing the what's playing the major role there do you think um i'm not sure that we completely understand it uh undoubtedly there is an interplay between uh stress hormones eating hormones insulin ghrelin um and and caloric loading that the and diurnal variations uh, 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 times of the day. So when you bring those all together, and undoubtedly it's going to take artificial intelligence or chat GPT to figure it out because clearly our univariate and multivariable statistical modeling have, have not really been able to guide us towards a, a believable or an understandable algorithm. But the point is, is it works. And decreasing the feeding window to a certain time of the day 
or let's just say a certain number of hours of the day. For me, it's it's about three to four hours. I do it at the end of the day because that's when I learn to break the fast after sundown. It also coincides with a time of day when I like to have, have my community time, time uh, with my children where we, we had celebrate dinner together. We cook dinner together and, and, and eat it together. Whether that's the right time of the day or not, I'm not sure we understand completely. And it may be different from person to person. Some people, for instance, prioritize, and there's some latest signs showing that it should be at the the beginning or middle of the day, and that the end of the day should be uh, a really um, really a fasting window. But I think the, the the message that we can take from all of these uh, these data streams and these anecdotal narratives is the following: decreasing the feeding window is a good thing. Uh, it, the the science shows that for most people, and it's probably a bell curve, right? Just like all biological phenomena, it, it's a bell curve. That, but for most people, uh, eating during shorter periods of time is a good thing in terms of again body mass composition, biological parameters, sugar, lipids. Um, uh, and, and, and other types of uh, hormonal responses. So I think that's what I would take away. And for those who are listening, give it a try. The first, the first few weeks, month, even two can be difficult. But I can tell you after doing this for seven years, I literally can be with others who are eating socially and I can have my black coffee or my sparkling water and not feel at all compelled to join them other than the social aspect. I don't feel an urge to even even partake in the most delicious meal until it's my feeding window. So it's it's amazing how the body adapts and this sort of self-perpetuating cycle between uh, committing to it, uh, feeling that I'm at peace with it, and then driving, again, decreased lipids, decreased cholesterol, and decreased body um, uh, fat content and increase energy and focus is is really compelling. Oh, and so, so to be clear, you you do this not just at Ramadan, but you've adopted it throughout throughout the year for seven years now. Is that right? Sort of- Every day of the year, I have, a, I have a feeding window between between four and seven p.m. And the the interesting thing that I've adapted to is someone who travels a lot initially between the Middle East and the U.S. and now across the U.S. and around the world in my new role at Fountain Life is I've just um, stumbled into this tradition where whichever time zone I'm in, I start my feeding window during that period. So if it's 4 p.m. in New York or, or Los Angeles or Dubai, that's when I personally start my feeding window. And the the corollary benefits of it are as follows. Not only am I aligning with my partners that I'm joining in that part of the world, so very much a, an important social aspect to eating, but also from a practical standpoint, it's 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 amazing because you don't have to uh, leave the group or break up a meeting or start or stop something or earlier or later. You just align during a common time period. But the final thing is, and curiously, I'm perhaps someone will prove it one day, but my jet lag has diminished. So interestingly enough, my body, uh, when I travel and have my feeding window between four to seven and then allow three hours of equilibration before I go to bed, my body is somehow able to flip very quickly into a normal eight hour uh, uh, sleep routine thereafter. And I, again, my my wearables, my whoop, 
my whoop uh, shows that I, I can indeed have a, a decent sleep utilizing that algorithm. So curious as to whether whether others have tried it and whether it would work for them. But this is something I found very, very powerful in my life as someone who exercises every single day uh, and and travels uh, very actively around the world. Yeah, that's a great thing. Well, I can I can add an N of one to that. My feeding window is about the same from four to seven and uh, in the evening. And it's it's transformed my life as well. And I find myself I used to, you know, search for food to eat for breakfast. And then it's lunchtime. I'd be looking for food to eat now. You know, I don't even miss it. And, you know, I get on a flight. I used to buy snacks for the flight and, you know, and worry about what it's now. It's it just makes things so much simpler. And the food tastes so good for that one meal a day. It's a true celebration, you know. Uh, exactly right. No, it's really heartening to hear you share that. You're one of one of the few people who have tried it. The other fascinating thing is when you sit on an airplane and say it's a 15 hour flight to Dubai, and you see the 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 rounds of meals that are brought during that period. I, I I'm a, I've become a social sort of observer of of sorts, a, a, a mealtime observer. And what I've noticed is that whether people are hungry or not, they 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 just eat the meal that's in front of them. But yet, you, you would experience the same thing. I'm not hungry the whole flight. Um, and it, it's 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 very curious uh, to the flight attendants. They are absolutely fascinated by it. They actually, I've had supervisors come over and ask me, "Is there something wrong, sir? Do you not like our food?" <laughs> no, I'm I'm really I'm I'm really good. Thank you so much. Thank you for your kindness and in offering. But I, I I literally do not do not eat until these time these times of the day. So it's it's funny. It's very unsettling to others who have never tried it. Yet, as you undoubtedly have have noted that once it settles into your routine, it's a very powerful, a powerful paradigm to have in your life. Yeah. Friends, friends, uh, people always ask, well, aren't you hungry all the time? How do you do it? You know, how do you do it? And I find, you know, I'm in ketosis most of the time just because of the food I choose, but also because I'm, I'm fasting and the ketosis, I think lowers the appetite. Has that been your experience? That, that is my experience entirely. The other thing that is that is that is very curious. We're all taught since we were children, and then I played university and uh, and and college sports, and and very active from high intensity training, running, yoga, weight perspective. We're always taught that you need a little snack before you work out, and then you need something immediately to bolster the carb or protein levels, whatever whatever the fad of the decade is. But what's fascinating is I can have the most intense workout in the morning, whether it's a, an hour-long run or a high-intensity workout or, 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 or a, a really strenuous strenuous weight workout. And they're, they're in, in my own body, and I'm not saying this is for, for everyone, but there's little correlation between the intensity of my workout and being able to last the duration of fasting to until 4 p.m. Uh, and, and therefore, it really tells me as a scientist and as a, as a, as a curious person that, that, that the, the traditional dogma that is borne out in the, in the common media and, by the way, the scientific and medical literature of the past about timing our eating with activity is not right. And, and one sort of folkloric analogy that I've heard recently that makes it all come together is the following. 
if you were a traditional cave person and you were starving and you had to jump up out of the cave and go sprint after a saber-toothed tiger or a woolly mammoth or whatever you were, you were you were going to eat the body would not be reliant upon you pre-feeding in order to make that that that, that acquisition of your next meal and therefore our bodies have evolved to have this extra reserve of energy, whether it's ketosis or undoubtedly more complicated than even just ketosis alone, an interplay between many hormones and signals and chemokines and cytokines. But our body is so sophisticated in its evolution that it is skilled at being able to apportion energy for activity keep us functioning through the day with enough glucose to power the brain, by the way, whether it's heart surgery or sitting in a board meeting, et cetera, and then be able to focus on obtaining the nutrition necessary for that 24-hour period during a, a feeding window. So I, I believe my prediction is, is probably along with yours, is that over the years and decades to come, we'll now be, um, we'll now be understanding with greater level of precision and scientific rigor why that is the case yeah there, there's so much information out there and one quote i i see people using a lot is that breakfast is the most important meal of the day and actually if you look at the origin of that quote it was it was a um and marketing message developed by John Kellogg, who is the inventor a hundred years ago or more of the, one of the original junk foods, which is Kellogg's cornflakes. And he, he started that saying to sell cereals for breakfast and get people to eat those things. But it's, it's fascinating. I, back to what you said about sleep that would, I wanted to touch on that. I, I recall an article that has a U-shaped curve about sleep with the risk of chronic disease uh, on either half of the U's. And then the sweet spot down there was, you mentioned eight hours. Is that is that pretty much tired? Or is it seven hours, eight hours, plus or minus? Or is it pretty much eight hours that you found on that? So for myself, it, it's eight hours. But but as any any biological phenomenon, there there is a bell curve, and and undoubtedly it's more it's more complicated than any of us understood. The combination of uh, of a metabolic metabolic activity, physical activity, mental stress, um, emotional uh, emotional variables, um, illness. Uh, Etc. Right. So if we stop and think of the flu, the flu season, uh, it's it's fascinating how many people align with the observation that they can be going through a stressful professional, personal, whatever time, and then as soon as the stress passes, they get sick. And, you know, they're totally crashed. They, you know, they need to be in, in bed and can sleep for 15, you know, 10, 15 hours a day, whatever it is. But what's fascinating is that we all have different levels of that. Why is that? When we're all genetically similar. So I believe that based on, on my observations as a person, as a, as a parent and as a scientist and as a doctor, I think there's a, there's many, many variables, but in, that impact that. I think the mean uh, or the median probably falls in that eight-hour range. But in addition to that, as all of us know who have on these wearables now, 
it's much more complicated than purely the number of hours. It's the no, it's the number of hours of restorative sleep, REM sleep, non-REM sleep, et cetera. So again, I think this field is just beginning to uh, be cracked wide open in terms of our the sophistication of understanding. The other the other variables that are just so fascinating to me as a scientist are the temperature based variables. So the the type of bed, the firmness of the bed, the temperature of the bed, the ambient temperature, the light pollution, the noise pollution, etc. Uh, one thing that was in my own life that was that was just just transformational as you know, going back and forth between North America and and the Middle East, uh, as many many of us know, going to North America was relatively easy to 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 adjust to, but coming back to the Middle East, particularly after about a week there, was enormously difficult. Waking up in the middle of the night is often impossible to go back to sleep. I found that regulating these things was extremely important. Uh, getting on to a, a regular sleep schedule as quickly as possible, eliminating uh, polluting light such as ambient light or electronic device light, monitoring the temperature in the room and having it at uh, a, a temperature that's below 70 degrees, really important. And then earplugs, re- removing removing sound pollution was e- extremely important. And I find that those who are interested and struggle with sleep, whether it's patients or colleagues or friends, uh, that I've recommended these things to, uh, most most have gained some benefits. So I'm curious as to whether there are users out, or, or listeners out there, participants in this conference who who would uh, who would resonate with that narrative. Yeah, I mean that. Those are that's great information. Is that does that apply pretty much across the board? The temperature you recommended and everything. Those are uniformly good recommendations for sleep hygiene. Or is it more everybody's different? Uh, you know, you have to figure it out for yourself. I think everyone's different, but the, the the science that I've seen on the topic is generally that we all were taught to sleep with ambient room bedroom temperatures that are higher than those associated now with the scientific monitoring of deep sleep occurring uh, at, at, at a level that's that's lower than we thought. So in other words, we, we all were in rooms that were were too warm and too cozy and and having the the room temperature a little lower than we we were brought up to believe uh, uh, as children and as, as physicians is probably a good thing. Yeah, I want to talk about your programs and your the new the new approach to things. But be, before we do that, I want to touch base one thing back to Ramadan and the social versus uh, physical effects of fasting. You, you mentioned the social the social benefits in there. What what kind of data have you seen on social influence on inflammation, aging, or health in general? Well, the we we know from studies like the blue zones that when people eat together, there's a powerful community uh, and population based uh, uplift in overall longevity. Now, as a as a, as a heart surgeon, I I tell people. You know these these are the risks. These are the benefits, and they say, "Well, what is my chance of dying or living, etc." I said, "Well, I can't speak specifically about you, but I can speak about what we know as a population." The same is true as I read the community data 
when you look at communities, whether they're religious communities or social communities or affinity communities, whatever they are, that the concept of sharing uh, and and um, having a well balanced diet that is um, that has some connection to the land and to the the ecosystem and sustains everything around it, not only for the suppliers of the food. Uh, but also the consumers of the food that things balance out to drive uh, population health. So what do I mean by that specifically? So when we divorce, for instance, where red meat is sourced or wheat is sourced from the consumers of it, um, as we're finding, it not only drives uh, adverse global consequences, global warming, pollution from 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 a, a massive uh, uh beef beef herds and and industries etc but it also causes populations and communities to become a little gluttonous quite frankly and therefore drivers of body mass index and adverse lipid lipid levels as long along with hba1c and and uh, pre-diabetic uh, 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 metabolic syndrome type of conditions. Yet we're finding as we come together as a community and source our fruits, our vegetables, our grains, our meats, our proteins in more sustainable ways, not only are we connected to the producers and the sources of them, but we're more respectful and we share them in a much more egalitarian and respectful way. We're finding that on an individual level, not only is body mass index, glucose levels, um, um, and lipid levels more, more reasonable, but we're seeing from these populations like the blue zones that these populations and communities seem to live longer. So that that's the that's the overall observation. I don't speak now from a scientifically, you know, uh, d- uh, constructed study with with p values and and statistics, but I believe that now with art- artificial intelligence algorithms being able to study these global trends and population based uh, uh, um, uh, t- uh, traditions and mores and patterns more effectively, being able to tease out extraneous or confounding variables and focus on what's influential. I believe that the, the, these things will, will come to light as being very, very prognostically influential. The other thing that's, that's a- incredibly important. It, when you look at uh, communities where there is a thoughtfulness around eating, meaning being thoughtful around taking a pause, decreasing stress hormones by either meditating or praying or giving thanks. There's some l- recent literature that shows that the stress hormone reduction that comes with that may prompt us to be more mindful about what we're eating, how much we're eating, and not eating for emotional satiation, but rather for physical satiety. And that makes a lot of sense, right? When we think about being on call as a as a as a surgical resident or a new cardiac surgical staff, if I'm running to to you know you know a long operation, I'm just putting whatever high carbohydrate, high calorie foods I can in my body 
which we know now are not good for ourselves. And then we can just stand back and look at the surgical lounges or the on-call lounges of many hospitals across the U.S. and around the world, and we can see the the the, the physical the physical ravages of of that type of pattern. So there's a lot of sort of pseudoscience observational data that's now emerging. And I believe that the next years and decades will really prove that out to be able to glean influential, independently prognostic variables associated with mindfulness, thoughtfulness, community-based sourcing and eating practices. It'll certainly be interesting to see where that leads. Uh, you're in the process of creating a new healthcare program. It's, it's very fascinating and exciting. Um, in the process of that, or what do you think is missing from current healthcare programs, or how how is your new program going to be different? Yeah, thank you. So many of us have played in traditional healthcare for decades, so we understand that there's there's really this this pressure to take care of sick people and we're humanitarians we've 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 taken the hippocratic oath we'll do whatever it takes to save a person to treat them as the most important person alive to save life at all costs uh, to care for families uh, and to improve outcomes and decrease costs. This is the algorithm that's churned over and over again that healthcare systems across the US and around the world. Having been a part of that and then having seen which populations and countries and communities do better and those that do worse, and then having the other observation of tying the research that's driving those trends into it and the payment mechanism, it struck me that this, this, the coordination was off. Let me put it that way. There, we could do a better job at impacting humanity. Remember that goal that I sort of committed to when I was a teenager in a medical school? It struck me at least that we could do a better job. And that's why when uh, my dear friend uh, Mark Hyman introduced me to the co-founders of Fountain Life, Tony Robbins, Peter Diamandis, uh, Bill Cap, and Bob Hariri, it was paradigm shifting. Now, why was that? So going back to our observations as heart doctors and heart surgeons, where we found that people with asymptomatic mitral valve disease who waited for symptoms and then came to us, even though we're sophisticated in being able to repair their valves with needle and thread, either open chest or robotically, we still were perplexed by the fact that they would often suffer the rest of their lives with heart failure, atrial fibrillation, and early death. Why is that? Is there a better way? And the answer is yes. So we found through years and decades of research that that taking the latency gap between the 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 onset of symptoms and the diagnostics and compressing it such that we brought diagnostics to patients and populations five, 10 years earlier than when they became symptomatic, we found in a very real uh, clinical condition, degenerative mitral valve prolapse, most people in this room will know, they've, they know someone with a heart murmur, and a good chunk of those will have mitral valve prolapse. We know that by treating them when they're asymptomatic, we can restore them to normal, normal life expectancy. What a powerful observation as a heart surgeon that then is expanded into everything we do at Fountain Life. 
we can, by shortening the latency gap in terms of early diagnostics in pre-symptomatic individuals, our early data shows we're able to rule out the 10 top causes of death. When the diagnoses for degenerative conditions, early diagnoses are made, we can oftentimes intervene to stop, reverse, or cure those conditions diabetes, hyperlipidemia, metabolic syndrome, cancers, aneurysms, other types of of, of heart and and dementia, uh, uh, neurologic conditions, and then optimize people moving forward. So again, let me just summarize what those are. Shortening the latency gap, bringing diagnostics earlier upstream, preventing the ravages of degenerative disease or, or, or oncologic disease from occurring, in, in many circumstances or delaying them and then optimizing people so they can stay healthier, happier, more active, productive of GDP for longer. That's a winning combination. That's what we are committed to at Fountain Life. Now, can we start in the red ocean area where everybody's commoditizing a, a race towards, you know, uh, I'm not going to say the bottom, but towards efficiency and sick care. No, we're starting in blue ocean, meaning we're proving the thesis in our bricks and mortar centers, studying the data. We're all scientists. Many of us are MD, PhDs. So we're a rigorous commitment to science, taking the data, putting into data lakes, data ponds, utilizing advanced analytics and machine learning algorithms to derive not only population-based insights, but end of one insights of what's right for 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 you, Dr. Lukin, and all of our clients, and then finding a way to parlay and translate that data into a payment mechanism that will cover people the same insurance when they're sick, but also when they're well. Our insurance platform pays for pre-symptomatic front-loaded diagnostics to, again, diagnose, reverse, stop, halt or cure disease, and then be there for patients and clients when they get ill. And we're currently providing this insurance in a, via captive insurance model to companies with 50 to 100 employees. So that's really the tripartite paradigm of our, of our, of our mission at Fountain Life. Uh, start early when people are well, keep them well and optimized for longer, study the data, teach, disseminate, uh, and, and, uh, and, and guide medicine and then find a way to pay for it so that we can do what? Improve the quality of lives and the health span of lives while decreasing cost. And we know that this is desperately needed all over the world. Yeah. And what, what sort of pushback are you getting from that? I mean, if I go to my local doctor and, you know, he took the Hippocratic Oath also, uh, but he's not going to do these things. Is that is that ignorance or the health system or, or what what kind of pushback and why why isn't everyone doing this? It, the, the, great like thing about, the great thing about being a care provider, a doctor, a nurse, et cetera, is you've been there. Well, I'm in the trenches and know what it's like to be in the heart surgery operating room or to seeing a patient or caring for them in the intensive care unit. So we have the legitimacy there. It's hard for 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 that to be argued. Number two, we're scientists, so we're we're, we're the data is transparent. That it's the the numbers are the numbers, the statistics are the statistics, and the conclusions are the conclusions through peer reviewed literature. The third thing is the no, the 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 dollars are the dollars. We can see what's spent, we can see what's saved, and we can see what 
the impact is on on uh, communities and populations. So really, the pushback has not been there. I mean, what what do people argue about in life? They argue if they don't understand, they challenge, or if their way of being is being is being undermined. And we we're we're not approaching it from that angle. We're approaching it from the perspective of improving lives, making people the best them that they can be optimize you so so you can, it's hard to argue with that in fact it's easy to endorse it we're finding many physicians nurses doctors uh administrators in and out of healthcare are just passionate about this everybody wants to be optimized for as long as possible so we're optimizing you we're we're transparently uh, sharing and publishing the data and we're working to build a payment mechanism that will uh sustain us all for the future and when people understand that that our 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 mission is aligned and that we're taking away nothing but only adding it's only accretive to to uh individuals and communities and families then then there, there's really been no pushback only collaboration uh and uh, partnership and that's really important is that this this paradigm doesn't exist in a vacuum there still is a need for secondary tertiary quaternary care along with innovation in pharmaceuticals diagnostics therapeutics uh, IT, digital, we're operating within an ecosystem where we believe that everybody has an important role to play in defining what the future of care, well care, and sick care looks like. And I, I understand you have a lot on your plate. You're trying to do a, a lot of uh, very innovative things here. Have, have you added a mental health or a psychological piece yet to the program? Uh, if so, what is that? Yeah, so that's a that's a really important question. So we, um, when our members come to us, we we have different member levels of membership. But when our 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 members come to us, we offer them various choices. So, ironically, some physicians, friends, and colleagues of mine, and family members, say, "Listen, I work so hard. I'm being told I have this or that, high lipids or high body mass index. I just want to know." what I have. Okay, well, that's a more of a snapshot diagnostics. Um, the second level of member says, okay, well, listen, I have high cholesterol. Um, I just, I want to be monitored as I go along. Um, so maybe you can just coach me for a little bit and then I'll get back to normal and take it over myself. That's another level of membership. And the third is, are those who are quote, biohackers. They have everything they want in life, whether it's, um, or maybe they don't, but they're on a journey to be the best them they can be. And this is a minute by minute, day by day, passionate exercise. And that we have a, a level of membership for them. So all three are, are designed for our members and curated. And as part of that, we ask our members, what's important to them? Is it cardiovascular? Is it sarcopenia based muscle and functional health is it cancer uh, uh, ruling out a cancer diagnosis is it stress is it dementia is it mental health so we the point is is regardless of whether it's a one and done or a, a more sort of um, through the year program or an intensive day by day coaching a guiding and intervening program where we bring the latest trials like rapamycin uh, and and metformin and 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 other types of therapeutics to our to our clients. It we tailor it to the individual needs of a human being. 
Yeah, that, that, that's, that's, that's fascinating. The, um, if people want to, uh, to join the program, you mentioned that some insurance or you're, you're working to include insurance. Is it, is what, uh, what sort of coverage is there? Is it Medicare or regular insurance or are you, or are you just starting out or is it on a case by case basis with that? So we have fountain health insurance. So if you're part of a company with over 50 in some states or 100 employees in other states, and this is uh, this is governed nationally, then we have the ability to come in, offer everything you're currently having offered by your traditional insurance plan, but offer an additional level of benefit called, uh, well, well, that is preventative, proactive, preemptive care, utilizing advanced diagnostics and be able to guide the, our members into therapeutic pathways. So this is called Fountain Health Insurance. We have a whole uh, team that's able to uh, explain what that entails. And this is the mechanism to really scale the model of care as we're moving forward. But I have something else exciting to talk about. And we're now being um, being uh, approached and in, in uh, very in, uh, deep discussions with what's called mixed-use communities where developers are partnering with local community members to imagine what societies and neighborhoods and cities of the future will look like, where people live, work, play, and are cared for all in one community. And many of these communities have asked for Fountain to be the anchor member, the, the anchor health lead within these communities, which is truly humbling and a tremendous opportunity. Because if you imagine having this as part of your benefit to be a part of the community, to figure out what's going on, to diagnose, stop, reverse disease, but be there for people when they get sick in all aspects, and then be able to guide them through diet, exercise, sleep, uh, mental well-being, uh, community activities is really powerful. And that's why all of us, I believe, went into medicine and went into care so that we can impact the lives of more than one person at a time, but truly millions and eventually billions on this planet to live longer, healthier, happier lives. That's a great summary uh, statement. And perhaps now would be a good time you could tell people, Rakesh, how they can reach you on social media and also perhaps the website too. They can go there. Yeah, very simply www.fountainlife.com. Uh, and then my name is on, on social media, Rakesh.m.suri, R-A-K-E-S-H-S-U-R-I. You can Google me. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, and I, I, I love to hear stories, love to meet people, uh, figure out new collaborations and partner with the most innovative uh, minds on the planet. So always, always delighted to connect with uh, remarkable people. So please do reach out. Great. Thanks. And thanks again for spending an hour with us, Rakesh. And, and thanks again also for the, the, the great work that you're doing. Thank you. True privilege. This is for general information and educational purposes only, and it's not intended to constitute or substitute for medical advice or counseling. The practice of medicine or the provision of health care, diagnosis or treatment or the creation of a physician-patient or a clinical relationship. The use of this information is at their own, uh, own user's risk. If you find this 
to be on the value of please hit that like button to subscribe to support the work that we do on this channel and we take the your suggestions and advice very seriously so please let us know what you'd like to see on this channel thanks for watching and we hope to see you next time